morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, by the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of Most High. The Lord God will give to him a throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will be there no will be no end mary said to angel to the angel how can this be since i am a virgin the angel said to her the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to the, the child to be born will be holy he will be the son of god and now your relative eliza elizabeth will be in her old age will also conceive a son and this is his and this the sixth month for her who was said to be barren for nothing will be impossible with god then mary said here am i the servant of the lord let it be me let it be with me according to the word then the angel departed from her The second gospel reading for today also comes from Luke 1. It's a song, a hymn. Sometimes we call it the Magnificat for the first word in Latin. But it is a song sung by Mary after she's had the encounter with Gabriel that Emily read earlier, and after she's then gone off to be with her cousin Elizabeth, who also has startling news that she too is pregnant even though she's long past childbearing age. Hear then this hymn of Mary. And Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked with favor on the lowliness of His servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. O Lord, descend upon us now. Give your spirit to us that we might hear once again your word for us this day, this place, 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A 30-something man decided it was time to settle down and find a woman with whom he could spend the rest of his life with. Being a busy engineer, he decided that he needed to have a plan, so he set up an Excel spreadsheet with a list of all the attributes of the ideal woman. There would need to be some attraction, of course, but she couldn't be so beautiful that she would be self-centered or stuck up. She would need to be physically active, but not too athletic. She would need to be not too tall or too short, intelligent, but not too nerdy, a woman of faith, but not a fanatic. The list was actually longer, but you get the gist of it. Armed with these criteria, he went on one of the dating websites, and he chose eight women that seemed to have at least potential. And so then he set it up two dates a week, just for lunch or drinks, so they wouldn't be too long-lasting, not too many problems if it didn't go well. And then, at the end, he expected to have his ideal candidate who he would choose for a second, longer date. And so the great search began. Each Friday, he would meet for dinner with his best friend and filled him in on the week's lunches. Not surprisingly, he found something wrong with each woman the last woman. At that fourth Friday dinner, our dating master described her to his friend with glowing adjectives. She was the perfect woman. But his friend noted that the description was given in a tone that dripped with disappointment. What's wrong, he said. She seemed perfect. To which the downcast suitor replied, yeah, but she was looking for the perfect man. When it comes to Mary, the mother of Jesus, there are some Christians who find her to be the perfect woman. Some artists and sculptors paint her with a beautiful and serene face. Through the centuries, Mary gradually gained supernatural qualities in the classic Roman Catholic theology. For example, Catholic doctrine declared that she remained perpetually a virgin and sinless. She did not even die a natural death, the doctrines eventually stated, but was taken directly from earth to heaven. Partly in response to that veneration of Mary, Protestant Christians have tended to downplay her role so that she is of little significance except as the woman who gives birth to Jesus. She's a part of every children's pageant, but rarely does she have a speaking part. She's one of the fixtures in our nativity scenes, a mute supporting character looking on the baby in the manger. The truth, as it so often is, is somewhere in between. As one scholar has noted, both worship of Mary and reducing Mary to her biological role miss out on something very important. That is, Mary is an example of faith who struggles with daily demands. Far from being an extraordinary saint on the one hand or a passive and mute bystander on the other hand, Mary here in Luke 1 gives us an ordinary, living, breathing disciple to emulate. And in and through Mary we get a glimpse of how God chooses to work in the world. 
it's a good thing you came this morning because here in Luke 1, we have an important prelude for what happens tonight on Christmas Eve in the stable. So let's look again at Luke 1. Notice first how Gabriel begins the conversation with Mary. Mary's not seeking God out. His visit is a complete surprise, which you can see in Mary's reaction to Gabriel when you listen to it. The Mary of Luke 1 is very different from the Mary of the Renaissance painters and sculptors. She's not a mature woman with a lifetime of experience. Remember, she would be a teenager here on the cusp of beginning married life with Joseph, to whom she's betrothed. Undoubtedly, she's filled with all of her own dreams and plans for the life ahead that she will share with Joseph. Then all that is interrupted, radically so, when this angel shows up in front of a peasant living in an obscure little village in the backwater part of the Roman Empire. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you, Gabriel announces. It's easy to misunderstand what Gabriel is saying here because of the translation of the Greek into English. Favored one, to our ears, can sound like Mary is somehow worthy of some honor because of who she is or what she has done or because of the life she's been leading. But the Greek word here could also be translated graced one or blessed one in other words, the emphasis is not on what Mary has done, but what God has done. Mary's blessing is a matter of God's choosing, God's initiative, and God's gift to Mary, not on what she's done to deserve the, this good news. God has chosen Mary because God is gracious and bestows unearned blessings and not because Mary is somehow specially worthy or has earned this blessing or good news. Blessed are you. We are no different than Mary, or to speak more precisely, God treats us no differently and sees us no differently than God treats and sees Mary in Luke 1. As David Lowe's, the president of the Lutheran Seminary down in Philadelphia, has written, the first and in some ways the most important thing we are to learn from the gospel is that God similarly notices us, favors, and blesses us before we've done anything to earn that blessing. You know, there's a big debate these days about children's sports and trophies. Some people feel like a trophy should begin, be given to every child at the end of the season just for participation so that they will feel worthwhile regardless of their athletic ability, regardless of how well the team be, does. And then there are traditionalists who say, if you do that, we're just going to raise a whole generation of young adults who think that they're entitled to things without any hard work or achievement. Now, I don't know where God comes down on the great trophy debate when it comes to sports seasons, but I can tell you this. What the scriptures tell us about where God comes out in terms of giving out God's trophies. God gives trophies before the season begins. That's one of the reasons why we baptize children at that font. As a demonstration that God knows us, notices us, loves us, 
and claims us before we've done anything to deserve that love. We are worthy in God's eyes before we have proven to be worthy. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Think about those words. Ponder that greeting from God as if it were said to you because it is. Hold on to it. When you doubt your worth, your place, or your lovability. Second, notice how Mary responds to the angel. You can hardly call her serene or unquestioning. She displays fear because Gabriel has to say to her, do not be afraid. She's bewildered and perplexed, Luke tells us, by Gabriel's greeting. And then when Mary hears from Gabriel about the infant she is to bear, she says, how can this be? Mary needs time to absorb what God, Gabriel has to say. But even with time, she has doubts because she knows who she is and who she's not. She is an ordinary peasant girl, not someone living in a royal palace or in the household of the chief priest. She's hardly the person expected to bear the Son of God. And then there is that greatest impossibility of all. How can she bear a son no matter who he is to become, if she's still a virgin. Gabriel responds with, with what some people have called the creed of faith that is beneath and supports all creeds of faith. That is, nothing is impossible with God. Back in the 1970s, a priest in Nicaragua did Bible studies with the poor in Nicaragua with farmers and fishermen and those living in the slums, and he recorded some of those conversations in a book called The Gospel and Salintanami. I've never forgotten what those people said when they read the account of Gabriel and Mary. They heard Gabriel's words of favor. They heard Gabriel's call to Mary, and what they heard was that, Mary, that Gabriel and God would make such a call to even poor people such as them. Just as Mary could be used by God, so could they. How right they were. Because the promise of Luke 1 is that God chooses to work in and through us as unlikely as that may seem. No matter how ordinary we are, no matter how far out of the way it seems that we are living, to be sure, we're incapable of doing God's will in and, by, in and of ourselves by ourselves. None of us are perfect men or perfect women. Our vision and power is too limited. Our courage and love are too weak. Our words and actions too often fall short of what they should be, of what they want them to be. The thought that we are in a position on our own to do something good and great to bring about the kingdom of God, that's just as ludicrous as, and impossible as the idea that this peasant girl in Nazareth will bear the Messiah and Savior of the world. But God makes the impossible possible. Read through the Bible and you cannot help but conclude that our God is a surprising God who turns human expectations and human orders of power upside down. 
Gabriel's visit with Mary is not an isolated incident. Just before this passage, if you were reading in Luke, you would have read about Elizabeth getting pregnant with John the Baptist when she was long past childbearing years. And then in the passage I read that comes at the end of chapter 1, Mary sings with praise that God brings down the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. Like Mary, we may be fearful. We may be bewildered and perplexed that God might choose us, us, to do God's will in the world. As with Mary, it may take time for us to absorb all of these incredible claims. We We have much to ponder and reflect upon, but that's okay. Because as with Mary, God says to us, Fear not, I am with you, and with me, nothing is impossible. Which brings us to the conclusion of Mary's encounter with Gabriel, because it's not enough just for God to make this promise to her. She has to respond, not under coercion, but freely. A lot happens in these 12 short verses. She goes from being an obscure peasant woman thinking just about her future with Joseph to encountering God through an angel and being told that she is the Savior, that he will be the Savior of the world. Very big plans for an otherwise very little life. Mary's ascent is far from instantaneous. She must go from being oblivious to being perplexed and bewildered and doubtful before she's ready to give a final answer to Gabriel. But by the end, Mary is able to give an unequivocal yes to God's call. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. With those words, she entrusts herself to a new self, to a willingness to imagine a future beyond her present, to embrace an identity of which she has, at this point, little knowledge or understanding, but to which she is willing to commit. And with her commitment, she finds joy. My soul magnifies the Lord, she sings, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The same is true for us. God makes an offer and gives us an assignment, but it is up to us to say yes. And to say yes is to give up control of our lives, although that we have control is any illusion anyway. To say here I am is a step into a future we cannot totally predict, except to say that when we say yes, we can be used by God to bring about good in the lives of others, no matter how ordinary we feel or how impossible that may seem. We may not be able to see the impact we have or how what we do or say could really make a difference for good. But when we say yes to God, when we offer ourselves to God, somehow, by God's grace and power, not ours, but by God's grace and power, we can play a part in God's overall plan of justice mercy, and love. 
And when we say yes, we step on a path that uniquely leads to joy and purpose and meaning. Friends, I have a question for us to all answer this morning. Do we think that God has done interrupting lives to use them for the health of the world? Or might we imagine that God is still doing this? As Christians, we believe that God has not stopped interrupting lives, or being active in the world. So when we get through our fear, our perplexity and bewilderment, and our incredulity, may we find joy, the joy of Mary, in saying, here am I, servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. Amen.